Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. On Buddha's birthday, two poems by Nyogen Senzaki. From ancient times to modern days, humans have depended on the topsy-turvy way of God or gods instead of relying on themselves. Such a flower of delusion is destined to be blown off even by the slightest breeze of intellectuality. The baby Buddha pointing one hand heavenward and the other toward the earth declared these words of independence. Above the heavens, beneath the earth, I alone am the world-honored one. That voice has shaken whole worlds and awakened all sentient beings. That was written April 4th, 1937. This one, April 7th, 1946, just after having been released from Heart Mountain concentration camp with Japanese nationals from all over. This is the poem. After his birth, the infant Buddha walked four directions with seven paces. Bravely and gracefully, 8,000 times in the past, he has come into this world and has gone from it again. What the legend says is not strange to us at all. Again this morning, the Buddha is born in the Western Hemisphere. See, See, the flower drift of pink and white, the spring tide of the great city. Praise be to the one, perfect in wisdom. This drift of pink and white the Buddha's pavilion, the garden of Lumbini right here, and framing our founding teacher, Muishitsu Edo Zenji. This morning, in the mist, everything disappearing, forms becoming transparent, mountain, lake, the trees, the sky, one.
this afternoon light, the brightness revealing shunyata exactly form, form exactly shunyata. And wafting through this mountain monastery, the scent of lilies, inhaling this fragrance. We are celebrating this birthday. Misho's born on this day. So I asked her to offer incense as well. But in truth, I have to say, happy birthday. Happy birthday to you all. First three days of this session were jam-packed with inspiring teachings, magnificent teachings. The luminous Yamakawa Roshi urging us onward. Every day is a great day. Every day is a great day to die. Every day, newborn. This heart mind opening, opening, and all we can say is hmm? thank you. Thank you. So this whole own holy day's session gives us a really strong and powerful feeling for the Dharma gifts we have received Truly, incomparable Dharma gifts. Edo Roshi's no more horns, no more head, no more body, no more legs, as Yamakawa Roshi said. Body dropped off and just this little tail, this pure dharma, so how do we repay? our dharma debts 
to our founding teachers, our generations of ancestral masters. As Daito Kokushi says in his admonitions, not by erecting prosperous temples and loudly chanting sutras written in gold and silver, and not by extreme ascetic practices of which we might be tempted to be proud, but just to be natural, to be ordinary, with utterly inconspicuous and yet powerfully actualizing devotion to the Dharma. Nothing extraneous. And when you examine what goes on in the mind, is there anything that is not extraneous? Is there anything you feel you need to carry around with you for the rest of this life? If so, I have a huge wheelbarrow <laughs> in the Doksan room, and I will give it to you gladly. So today, April 8th, 2019, is the funeral in New York City of our dear friend and mentor, Sarah Holland. She has had a long association with Zen Study Society, especially through open space, programs at the Beecher House, and she has been a member of our advisory council, always supporting, always encouraging, and always poking with her irrepressible wit. Such a vigorous life, cut short, by an aggressive cancer a few months later. In her obituary, I think her wife, Lori Feldman, probably wrote this. A lifetime supporter of the arts, advocate for women, and champion of LGBT equality in the workplace, Sarah sought to level every uneven playing field. And many Zen students can testify to her deep commitment and service to the recovery community. At the bottom of her emails, she sent me many, many, always was the line by Oscar Wilde, 
be yourself. Everyone else is already taken. <laughs> and this is what we are doing here. I alone am the world-honored one. And to be yourself in this way, who is left out? What is left out? This is true embrace. From the heavens above to the earth below. Cardinal directions. Seven steps. This way. This way. This way. This way. So, that baby. Born about 2,585 years ago. So in 15 years, we can say, oh, Buddha was born 2,600 years ago, more or less. He was born to the royal family of Gautama, Siddhartha Gautama, in Kapilavastu, in the Shakya kingdom. And as some of you may recall, before his birth, his mother, Queen Maya, had a dream. She saw in this dream a star casting rays of innumerable colors, brilliantly shining. And underneath that star, what was there that she saw? Do you remember? You were there, too. Hmm? An elephant. A white elephant with six tusks. So, she thought, what does this mean? Maybe you wonder, what does it mean? This dream. Luckily, she had the palace soothsayer to ask. And he said, well, there are two possible interpretations. One, your baby will become a great world ruler, uniting all the lands around. Or maybe a great holy man. Now, what do you think his parents wanted? Hmm? First choice. First choice? Yeah. And so they thought, well, if we can ensure that our child does not have to endure any suffering, then he will be less likely to seek a way out of suffering and less likely to become a holy man. So they decided that when this child was born, he would be kept from seeing any misery of the world. 
They would be given only the most luxurious of circumstances, as would befit a prince after all, but would re remain in the palace and everything would be just right for him. Most wonderful food, beautiful people wherever he went, kindest tutors, and of course, lessons on how to be what? Warrior. Huh? How to be what? Not a warrior exactly, but okay. certainly hmm? a worldly success. I don't think they wanted him to go to battle, but I think they did want him to feel that it was important to grow up and be a great ruler. So that's their attitude toward him. Now, so how many of you are parents? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And wouldn't you agree with me that we all want the best for our child or children? Yes. But that's a tricky phrase, isn't it? Wanting the best. There's some kind of agenda there. The best according to whom? There perhaps might be some subtle dictates that are underneath that, that agenda. So we want the best for the child. And what goes along with that? Remember there was some years ago, Yoju, you will remember, father knows best. What was that? A television show? Yeah. Father knows best. And of course, as parents, we tend also to rely upon the experiences we've had with our parents, and maybe they haven't been so great. And so we might kind of go in the other direction as far as what is best. Yeah. Like the, the man who owned a company that Yamakawa Roshi talked about who didn't want to impose on his son the kind of severity that he experienced from his own father. And yet, what, how should he give over eventually the company unless he transmitted to his son the importance of strict self-discipline, being upright and ethical, being dutiful, and having kind of impeccable attention to everything. That takes training, doesn't it? And so he came to Yamakara Roshi, as you recall, in a troubled spirit. And that Teisho, in which he talked about the meaning of the kanji for troubled, was so memorable, right? What was the image? Ah, so? That was for weak, being weakened. The box, this uh, kind of steel box, right? 
absolutely could not get out of it. And this tree, you might think, okay, this is the child growing, growing. How, how troubled, how can my son grow capable, responsibly? And somehow the box itself, you know, this, where does this box come from? We all may feel from time to time that we are in a steel box. So from the mind, you are saying, huh? We are creating it, right? Based on what? Language. Hmm? Words or what we think of as who we are, self-identity, circumstances, expectations, conventions. It's really hard. It's hard to realize that this is not permanent, just as it is hard to realize that everything within us and around us is not permanent. Oh, that terrible feeling I just had. I will always be feeling that way. No, no, you won't be. It's already gone. But you may have a wonderful feeling. And what do you say about that? Well, that'll be gone. (laughs) This is that steel box, right? It has such a strong influence. So it's hard to be parents. It's hard to be a child. Each may be troubled or worried about the other. How many of you have felt the kind of pressure that that man who was thinking about his own father and handing over this company to his son, how many of you have you, how many of you have felt that kind of um, expectation on the part of your family? You know, go get a good education, have a good career, have a good family, a good life, and don't look around. Don't be waylaid by what? The religious life. (laughs) (laughs) So it's not so distant from our own experience to think about that, Prince. Hmm? And somehow questions about these expectations arise. And we feel, "Mm, okay, I understand that's what you want from me, but that's not the whole of it. It doesn't feel as though I can go in that direction. And I don't know, it feels as though the purpose of life eludes me. And perhaps... You've encountered some form of dukkha from one time to another in your life. Some misery, some disappointment, some really traumatic experience. And have a sense of, I need to understand what I'm here for. And so here you are. Again and again, some of you, I hope all of you, will continue in this process of introspection, examination, and deep 
and penetrating insight. So meanwhile, back in India, Queen Maya's time came, and she wanted to be with her parents for the baby's birth. So she and her procession began to go to her native village. And on the way, they passed this garden, this garden of Lumbini, this beautiful flower grove. Have you heard the birds singing? A robin? Many birds are coming back to the mountain. And she heard these birds and smelled these fragrant flowers and reached up to pick one of them. And what happened? The baby was born from her armpit. Now, anatomically speaking, (laughs) maybe strange. I had a C-section, but not in my armpit. (laughs) Still and all, there is something. You too? (laughs) About this being born from her mother as she is reaching up for this flower. What is her mind? What is your mind? Hmm? Try it. Reach up. Pure awe. From this, baby Buddha arrived. And so flowers throughout this baby's growing up years and later after he became enlightened under flowering tree, he gave his first transmission to Mahakashapa with flower and passed away, Parinirvana. Flowers fluttering down over his body. And many of us have been chanting Diamond Sutra here at Daibosatsu Zendo, Kongoji. This means Diamond Temple for so many years. And we meet, of course, the Buddha's disciple, Subhuti. After his long years of training, Subhuti was sitting under a tree and he entered into such profound samadhi, pure emptiness. Flowers began falling all around him. And he heard celestial deities whispering, we are praising you for your discourse on emptiness. Subhuti, of course, coming out of samadhi, said, but I have not spoken 
of emptiness. The deities responded, You have not spoken of emptiness. This is true emptiness. On this scroll to the left of the altar is Edo Roshi's calligraphy, snow, moon, flower. And that says it all for this session, doesn't it? Snow, moon, flower. So that baby Buddha emerged and entered into what Son Roshi wrote in haiku, all beings are flowers blooming in a flowering universe. So with this mind, this newborn child took seven steps each direction and declaimed from the heavens above to the earth below I alone am the world honored one now of course this is not something we can understand logically any more than we could give some rational explanation of being born from his mother's armpit Newborn, walking seven steps each direction and speaking. Where's the scientific proof of that? But some of you remember Ada Roshi's very famous saying, the real is not the rational. The rational is not real. So how do we prove such a thing? That's what we're here to do. To prove. To testify. To manifest this entire blooming universe, this above the heavens, beneath the earth, endless dimension, universal life, right here, as Nyogen Senzaki said in his poem, he declared these words of independence. And that voice has shaken all worlds and awakened all sentient beings. So each of us was born. Do you remember? Where were you born?
Where were you born, Dokoro Osho? The house of the 11th century. So about how many years after baby Buddha? Three, huh? <laughs> A few, yeah, 3,000 something. Each of us was born saying, That's it. The universal cry of independence, right? Here I am, called into being. Like Abraham hearing God's voice. Here I am. I alone, the world honored one, have arrived. This is what ah! means before words. From the beginning, this natural Buddha. So what happens next? After your wonderful independent declamation, what happened next? They did. So the first, first hint of separation, right? With that cutting of the cord. And then, there you are. And then, oh, it's time to be winged. And then what? Education. So we are educated out of that natural, true person, right? And we find there's a different kind of proof required for being in the so-called real world. So we have separation from mama. We have a separated identity that we believe to be real. We see everything from the neuroses that keep accumulating as we grow. And that, of course, is a wonderful thing because it brings us here, right? I'm in such pain. What am I going to do with my life? Maybe you don't say so when you sign up for a session, but <laughs> it brings us together here. So you may have... All kinds of negative emotions flying up and down and disgruntlement and all manner of dukkha. Oh, my knees, my back, I'm so tired. And we find out that we are truly lucky, truly fortunate, right? Our own suffering teaches us this. How lucky we are, that we can be allowed to experience everything directly, directly.
directly, to see everything directly, and to act from that directly. This is how we change, how we truly mature in Buddha's wisdom. A student wrote to me recently, he was in anguish. His suffering was brought about because he had a granddaughter who was born with some developmental issues, delays in language, delays in motor skills have continued. And the experts recommended a program of medical procedures, various interventions over a long period of time. And this student thought, okay, let's go for it so that we can correct this in time while she's young. But you know, the parents didn't agree. His daughter and son-in-law said, We don't want to do that. So he was beside himself. And he asked me, without doing these interventions, it's going to be a train wreck. In other words, his granddaughter will not be able to do the things that, quote unquote, normal, children can do. And then he said, how can I sit idly by? They don't want to take my scientifically based understanding of what needs to be done. Well, I wrote back to him and suggested Maybe he could find in his own heart the radical acceptance to love her and them, her parents, as they are. I said they have all the recommendations of all the experts. If they feel your consternation and your judgment, what will happen? They will become even more stubborn. They will dig in their heels and say, no, we will not consider it, no matter what is suggested. And they may shut you out. So what can you do? First of all, drop all the cautionary admonishments And praise your granddaughter as she is. Don't summon up a dire future. And don't think 
It's a train wreck. And especially don't sit idly by. Pray with every ounce of your energy, I said. Ask Kanzeon for help to bless this little girl, however things may go. It's not about successful outcome. The more love surrounds her, no matter what, she will be a happy girl and will have a fulfilling life. And all you need to do is trust in the Dharma. Now, for some of you, this may sound somehow like Pollyanna, you know, yeah, you need to do a little bit more practical stuff, right? Who feels that way? Maybe in some sense you all do. But this student has been practicing a long time. And he said, thank you. Thank you. I will do this. Just pray. Just So his situation may be a little extreme, but I think all of us have had something similar in our lives. Concern about someone we love. Hmm? Someone's actions may not be in line with what we think would be wholesome and helpful. And so we try to correct the situation, right? You have to do it this way. No, no, no. You really have to do more of this. Don't do any of that. And all of our urging, what happens? Hmm? This is weakening, right? It's weakening. You know what else is weakening? Not only urging them to change, but saying, oh, you poor thing. Oh, I'm so sorry for you. This is really that wonderful character that Yamakara Rishi told us about. There he is. That's his calligraphy sitting alone on the great sublime peak, sitting with all beings on this great sublime peak. Each of us is doing this. And then he feels a hand. It's a hand. What's that hand doing? So remember he said he went back and looked it up? Now, pushing down. So many of our attempts at compassion are actually weakening. We have to be very careful. What are we doing? And what is it coming from? We may be walking around thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to take care of such and such. I, I know how to make somebody change in the best way for him or her. But, you know, we don't know. 
This is why I love that saying of the popes, right? The pope said regarding, uh, I think at that time there was a storm of controversy about gays in the Vatican. He said, who am I to judge? Who am I to judge? What do I know? This is a very helpful thing for us in our practice, right? Just to say that, right? Who the hell am I that I think I know what's best for you? So, you know, accepting things as they are from this place of trust is very different from passive resignation, right? Oh, well, I don't know what to do, whatever. No, that's not what we're talking about here. Not at all. To cry out from the heart. This trust. So, dukkha. We cannot avoid it. But what we can do is let it be the spur that drives us to true practice. That pebble in the shoe, the mild form of dukkha, That consternation about whatever is coming up in our lives is exactly what is needed to say, wow, wow. I don't have a clue, but I'm going to really practice really deeply look into this. So even Siddhartha Gautama couldn't avoid dukkha, even though his parents did their best. What happened? He already had suffered a terrible loss. When I say parents, I'm referring to the king and his second wife because the Buddha's mother died shortly after he was born. Where's mama? Those of us who have lost a parent at an early age know that this is, this shakes us out of whatever blissful contentment has been holding us, shielding us, protecting us. And I think it's very hard to be complacent when we feel, where's daddy? There is something some recognition of deep sadness within that is mirrored by the world outside. 
And so Siddhartha knew. He had this recognition within him. He had to get outside those castle walls. And what happened then? A nice stroll. Hmm? A nice stroll. Imagine being cosseted the way he was with nothing to disturb his childhood and teenage years except what he keenly felt within him, this loss. And then going out and the shock, the shock, what is that? What is that? Hmm? Okay, you be sick. <laughs> Who wants to be... Huh? Old age. Okay, let me see. <laughs> okay, old age. And? <laughs> let me see. <laughs> oh, that's not death. Rebirth, right? And seeing also what? Fourth compelling sight. A monk. Mm. A holy man. And just this. What is that? And he began his spiritual journey. And you know, this is a rare thing for all of us to encounter, to really see without any veils between us and what we are confronted by. And if we are fortunate, rare it is to be born in human form. Rarer still to encounter this Dharma. And even rarer to find a teacher. And to recite as we do every day this Dharma, incomparably profound and minutely subtle, is rarely met with. To feel this as we are reciting, we now can see this. Listen to this. Accept and hold this. And here we are. Now, on Wednesday, we'll meet a Zen teacher from the past named Nanto Koyu. 
and his disciple Basho Essay from Case 80 of the Iron Flute. One day, Namto said to his assembled monks, If you are brave, you are brave because you are here. If you are brave, come out from the womb and roar like a lion. Hearing these words, Basho was awakened and he became Nanto's successor. So this baby, these babies came from the womb to the shock of here. Oh. And then what? The roar of here. No matter how protected, we must go through the adversity that our karma very obligingly provides for us. We must, because of that, because we may dimly recall from our past lives the truth of that roar, and then because we are rarely met with, because of the readiness of time, because we are here. You know, we can't go back into the womb. Here we are. No hiding, no retreating. Just this as it is. Three days left of this session. Come out from the womb. Roar like a lion. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org donate. Thank you for listening.